to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Mona Charon, Policy Editor at the Bulwark. I am sitting in today for the vacationing Charlie Sykes, who will return after Labor Day. And I could not be more delighted to welcome as my guest today, the president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels. Now, Mitch, you and I have known each other for many years, and it is still the case that when I meet someone or see somebody's writing and they say that they're ideal president of the United States would have been Mitch Daniels. I know that that's a person I'm going to agree with on a lot of things. Uh, (laughs) So welcome to the Bulwark podcast. Um, And uh, for those who do not know you, I want to go back a little bit because of the current political environment. I want you to talk a little bit about your first race for governor of Indiana because it is so countercultural now. You didn't run a single negative ad, did you? We didn't, and made something of a point of it at the time, and doesn't seem all that long ago. It was uh, always well-received when I pointed out to people that we were going to seek public office. That's the only office I ever ran for, or ever really uh, aspired to. But I said, uh, I remember in a little uh, commercial that I wrote and and released right before the Republican primary. We had a hotly contested one, which we ultimately did win two to one. But I said to my fellow Republicans, before you vote, and you should know that um, there's certain things I won't do. I've not run for office before. There's certain things I won't do to win it. And those include attacking anyone's background, motives, or uh, personal characteristics. That message, Mona, was really meant for the, a broader audience who I hope to be addressing and, and then was in the general election. But it really, all the way through the end of that experience in 2012, it was a, a really sort of an easy applause line in a speech to point that out, that we had run by then in three different elections and never resorted to that. And um, I do think it's regrettable that that seems to be the currency of not just part of, but the principal currency of current political uh, campaigns. And I, I'm not sure it's good for the process. Yeah, uh, it's not, not too much doubt about that. You know, before we leave that, maybe I should say our, our campaign was very different in, an, in a second way that I also regret uh, not seeing much of these days. And that was we really put personal contact back in it. I, again, I was a no-name first-time candidate. But I already had had a sense that there had to be more to, as I used to say, to to uh, seeking public office than tarmacs and TV commercials. And so we, we got an Indiana-built RV from the low end of the market and drove the wheels off it, ultimately in both campaigns, went to all the places that, quote, nobody ever comes here anymore, places, stayed overnight in people's homes as opposed to uh, motels. You actually uh, slept on people's sofas. Whatever they had. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it started, this will shock you. It started as an exercise in cheapness. I didn't want to spend <laughs> money if someone would just put us up overnight. It quickly became a great source of new insights, stories, funny things would happen. But, you know, personal stories that you could tell at the next stop and enliven or illustrate some point you wanted to make. But in any event... That was another, I think, somewhat different approach. 
And it was, people would say, well, you were wasting your time. Look at, do the math. It doesn't matter how many miles you go, how many stops you make, how, how many people you meet, even multiplied. It can't be a material factor in the election. And we understood that. But it, people knew I was doing it. And they, I hope, got a sense that they had access to uh, then their governor and um, that uh, everybody in every place mattered. And that was the message we were trying to send. Once again, much like the negative advertising, I don't see much of that, not authentically anyway, in today's politics. And I think that's uh, unfortunate, both as a matter of one's credibility having one public office, and secondly, uh, as, as a very wise former elected official, someone you know quite well, Lamar Alexander said to me early on, he said, that's great what you're doing. He said, it will probably make you a more successful candidate. It will definitely make you a better governor. And Mm. he proved correct about that. Yeah, such a great story. You are sort of the prototypical Midwestern American. I mean, you have extraordinary ability, but you know, you your whole affect is Midwest America, Middle America. And yet I want to probe a little bit about your background because there's an immigrant story there not that long ago, right? Yeah, second generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very unremarkable, but uh well typical, right? What's the only thing remarkable about it is how common it is in America. But yeah, my um on my father's side, uh, my grandfather and grandmother emigrated early in the century from uh, Syria. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, he came as a young man, never did read or write English, but came and built up a little stake and then went home years later and and uh, took a bride and brought her here and started a family. Okay. And then you had, did your undergraduate degree at Princeton. How did you avoid becoming a progressive at Princeton? I'm not certain. I, I I confess that, like I think many, maybe most young people, I was probably malleable. I did not come from a political family. Somewhere I had instincts that these days we would uh, identify as conservative, I guess. I did have one. I, I guess the, 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 I'll say, fortunate break was that being interested for some reason in things political, I a neighbor whose grass I cut to make a few extra dollars was active in local Republican politics. And he suggested me to somebody who suggested me to somebody. And I wound up working for a Republican political campaign of a a later very noteworthy person, Bill Ruckelshaus, who lost his election for the U.S. Senate, but ultimately whose talents were visible. And he was recruited into the uh, Nixon administration, he became one of the people who resigned in the famous Saturday Night Massacre. But that's where it got started. And uh, from then, uh, that campaign didn't succeed. But uh, another up-and-coming talent who the world will remember is Senator Richard Luger, was the mayor of Indianapolis, and I got connected to him. And that is really where I think my worldview got formed. Now, after you left uh, the governor's mansion, you became the president of Purdue, And that's been, what, is it 10 years now? 10 years. And you just announced that you will be stepping down in January. And you have a quite sulfuric piece in today's Wall Street Journal about the student loan forgiveness plan, which we'll come to. But before that, I want to get some of your reflections on students. So I talked to somebody who's been an educator at the college level for about 
40 years. And I asked him, what were the big changes that he saw in the student body from the beginning of his career to the end? And he said, the biggest change is the mental health of the students, that they are so much more fragile now, so much more needing of you know, emotional support and therapy and, and so on. Purdue's kind of a unique place. It's full of people who know what they want to do and they're very technical and, you know, I mean, not all of them, but many of them. Is Purdue immune from that or did you see that as well? We're not immune and we do see it. I think as a matter of degree, from what I understand and read of other places, it may be somewhat, somewhat less prevalent here, but there's no question. I've read a lot and written a lot and took one entire commencement address to talk about this subject. And uh, there, there are a lot of diagnoses for how it came to be, uh, Mona. There, there, there's the thought that in some cases, loving but overprotective parents may uh, have been a factor. That is in other problems or even pathologies we could identify that social media may have played a role. But it has led us here at Purdue. We've always prided ourselves at this school. Think about our mascot, the Boilermaker, that we produce uh, young talent, uh, not only learned and knowledgeable and and probably skillful in one way or another, but people with the uh, character traits of persistence and diligence and what we usually refer to as grit. Um, but that's probably never been more important than today. And so we actually talk about it and have uh, some programming that we hope cultivates it so that if they arrive here, as you said, somewhat fragile, uh, they leave a little more resilient. But it's, it's certainly true, and it's been pretty well documented now in the social science research literature that a greater percentage of young people, when something goes wrong, as things always will, have the first instinct to find and look for an adult to fix it for them, now, maybe even a, a therapist of some kind. And that's, that's new and different. At uh, 20 years old, I'm not sure I knew what a therapist was, let alone ever had the urge to repair to one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not that therapy is always a bad idea, mind you, but... No, no. I was in, you know, I always have to remind people that the longest stretch of my working life was in private sector, and the longest stretch of that was at Eli Lillian Company, whose scientists gave the world a molecule called fluoxetine. The world knew it as Prozac. And the whole breakthrough of, of Prozac and then similar follow-on molecules was that it helped people understand that depression, for instance, is just as often a problem of chemical imbalance and a treatable phenomenon. And so it is very important that people find help for emotional or other difficulties that they're having. They're very real, sometimes very severe. But that doesn't mean that, as I said, the, the, the first step always is, especially for a young person, is to uh, run to an elder for assistance. Right. Okay. Now, while you've been at Purdue, you have managed to keep costs stable. Purdue hasn't raised tuition. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. For how many years? Now, this is year 10. And we've already wow. uh, we've already assured our students and their families that next year, so that would be the 23 four school year will be the will be year 11 and uh, we've not raised tuition or fees we've also reduced uh, modestly the cost of room and board and books and um, 
So the simplest way to think about it is that it's less expensive to attend our school. This is true for in-state and out-of-state students. Uh, uh, less expensive in nominal unadjusted dollars than it was in 2012. It's become something that almost without exception, people here feel good about and when they can, and that happens, help us find ways to keep it going. <laughs> okay. So it's safe to say this has not caught on. Uh, <laughs> you're you're uh, not a trendsetter here. Uh, <clears throat> so that brings us to your piece in today's Wall Street Journal about uh, about the loan forgiveness and the, the whole subject of the way we finance uh, higher education and uh, and the reason. You know, so, you know, for decade upon decade, right, we've always heard that college is too expensive and we need to reduce costs and we need to make it affordable. Um, and so we keep subsidizing it and the universities keep pocketing the subsidies and raising their tuition. What am I not getting here? Regrettably, I think you just described the situation correctly. It's been very well documented for a very long time. This, this started uh, a long time ago, Mona. You'll recall it was originally this notion that you just outlined was uh, first uh, suggested as a hypothesis. They called it the Bennett Hypothesis. Our old uh, colleague, uh, friend and colleague, Bill Bennett, then Secretary of Education, flagged this. Goodness, I don't know, more, more than a quarter century ago. And it's been borne out in all sorts of uh, research now in literature. Yeah, the best estimates, Federal Reserve of New York, I think it was, looked at it very deeply and concluded that something like 60 to 70 percent of any new subsidy would show up in higher prices. And um, it's just natural and it's just human, uh, but uh, it's unfortunately a, a mistake that we have continued to repeat. And uh, why don't you give us your analysis of the latest loan forgiveness thing that the Biden administration has announced, your objections? They're multiple. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it includes the fact that the likelihood that this move will further exacerbate the cost problem in higher ed for the reasons we just gave, uh, in fact, may introduce a new chapter, it may induce probably will in some cases, oncoming students to borrow more than they should have, thinking that they'll be let off the hook too. This mm -hmm. is the so-called moral hazard aspect of it. But that's only where it begins. I, I just find it such a distressing action constitutionally. The idea that any president of the United States for any purpose with a stroke of a pen ought to be able to spend in, uh, something like $600 billion, I think is on its face is an affront to the Article One of the Constitution, which gives that power very specifically to the people's representatives. I said when asked this question the other day, I said, you know, folks who believe that they could arrogate to the executive this sort of power circumventing the Constitution and the legislative branch ought not lecture anybody else about respect for democracy. So there's that. Just as a fiscal matter, it's catastrophe on top of so many others. You know, this is a long time preoccupation of mine. I think we're doing a huge injustice to future generations and really risking the uh, economic and even national security of the country by piling up debts that we will not be able to pay back. Certainly huge risk to the safety net programs on which vulnerable people uh, rely. And so um, 
just the the pure spending element of it, I think, is is very very uh, troublesome too. And then finally, maybe I should have started here. Just the gross unfairness of it. Ninety nine percent plus of the graduates of Purdue University pay back any student loan they may have uh, taken out, and uh, that's something they should be proud of, and we're proud on their behalf uh, because it shows not only that they were able to become productive citizens earning their way in the world, paying back their debts, but that they had the sense of personal responsibility to do so. And um, the, the unfairness of this to the, all those millions who did that, not to mention those who never got a chance to go to college, you know, people are now contemplating, as someone said, you know, plumbers and hotel maids picking up the tab for uh, medical school graduates who will soon be earning millions of dollars. So I really think it's one of the most unfortunate public policy choices of any kind that we've seen in a very long while. It is unfortunate. And uh, we will see whether it will survive legal challenge because it's it's based on a fairly flimsy assertion of presidential authority for an emergency based on COVID, which, as I say, may not hold up. And then, of course, President Biden can say, well, I tried, you know, and the courts wouldn't yeah. allow it. And, uh, you know, then off the hook. But we will see. Meanwhile, other people might have come to rely on it. It's kind of a mess. But on the topic of respect for democracy and the way it was done, the fact that it was an executive order, you know, this is, has gotten to be a really worrisome trend. So during the Obama administration, you heard Republicans speaking of fulminating, you know, fulminating about Obama. And I was one of them fulminating about Obama's abuse of executive orders, uh, whether it was on Obamacare, where he would just issue sort of these uh, you causes um, and, uh, and, and that would be the law. And people said, okay. Or whether it was on immigration, where he first denied that he had the authority and then went ahead and did it. And so, but, but then when Trump did the exact same thing. Funny thing, all those Republicans who were worried about the abuse of executive authority said it was completely fine. All true. Um, I, I don't. I don't think there are clean hands in this. It's didn't start. I suppose you could say it, it's been uh, growing in an almost linear way even before President Obama. Yeah. But it would be a healthy thing, I think, if uh, someone uh, became president of either party and from time to time said, I agree with you that X is a problem, but I don't have the power and shouldn't to try to address it myself. Let's see if we can't agree as a, a national community through our, our legislators to do this. That would lead to the sort of compromise and, and also broader based. When something's done that way, it has the a greater likelihood of staying power because right. of, of the way in which it was effected. You know, we've seen lots of executive orders. Now we're in this this um, seesaw of um, administration A with a stroke of the pen takes some action. Administration B comes along and undoes it. And then administration C puts it back. Yep. Uh, not a good way to do business. Now, on the topic of legislators and trying to find better legislators, I would note that I don't know if you've given this any thought, but uh, Alaska's experiment with ranked choice voting has uh, resulted in Lisa Murkowski, one of the 10 senators who voted to impeach Trump, 
uh, being able to survive a primary challenge because they've changed the structure. And I'm very interested in this reform. Catherine Gale is uh, the sort of moving force behind this. She argues that um, a tiny fraction, fewer than 10% of voters in party primaries determine who our candidates are and that this encourages both parties to um, to appeal to their most extreme voters. And then in, in the general election, the, uh, the regular voters just have poor choices. Um, and there are other things about ranked choice voting because it will um, sort of it will encourage more candidates to run the way you did, not running negative ads. Because if you want your opponent's uh, supporters to choose you as their second choice, you have an incentive not to be negative. Have you thought about this at all? You know, do you have any views? I have, and increasingly, I would say the the idea is growing on me. Mm. For the very uh, good reasons you just gave, uh, because I'm not, for the moment, seeing another way out of the of the corner uh, you just accurately depicted, uh, in which um, districts, uh, certainly congressional districts, I think we see it on the lower, even at lower levels, are uh, sufficiently homogenous that that uh, as you say the the, the fringe, uh, left or right, of a given party dictates who the ultimate officeholders will be. So, yeah, I, I'm i watching with interest what I once thought might be just sort of a gimmick, I think is pretty applicable to, to the situation in which we find ourselves. You know, people have for a long time said, well, if you could just draw districts in a different way, mm-hmm. uh, no gerrymandering. And that's uh, uh, theoretically an answer to this, but I don't see that working out. And by the way, Mona, I'm, I think even if through some magic you could have a fair line drawing state by state, another change which comes into play is that entire areas through uh, a self-selection of people the big uh, are sort, becoming yeah. um, more similar. I've, I've cautioned our students at more than one commencement, you know, be careful not to wind up without intending to in some sort of a personal and professional enclave where you work with people like you, socialize with people like you, live near people like you, marry someone like you, and uh, wind up detached from the lives of, uh, of so many of your uh, fellow citizens. But that is where we are. Increasingly, you could draw and, and absolutely fair boundaries, that is to say, uh, compact no, uh, no strange salamander-like, you know, peninsulas uh, of the kind that gave birth to the term mm-hmm. gerrymandering. Uh, you could do those, and they'd still be—you'd still have the, the problem of one party or a dominance, which then would make this reform you're asking about perhaps the one way to uh, to bring things a little bit back to the middle and a little bit back to civility. Speaking of that, um, last night, President Biden gave a speech where he warned about threats to our democracy. And um, a lot of the speech, I have to say, and I'd be curious if you want to comment on this, a lot of the speech was um, really uh, very good and and um, non-controversial, or at least I, I don't think one would argue. Um, let, let's just play a little a little sound from that speech. 
You saw law enforcement brutally attacked on January the 6th. We've seen election officials, poll workers, many of them volunteers of both parties, subject to intimidation and death threats. And can you believe it? FBI agents just doing their job as directed, facing threats to their own lives from their own fellow citizens. On top of that, there are public figures today, yesterday, and the day before, predicting and all but calling for mass violence and rioting in the streets. This is inflammatory. It's dangerous. It's against the rule of law. And we, the people, must say, this is not who we are. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, we can't be pro-insurrectionist uh, pro pro and pro-American. They're incompatible. We can't allow violence to be normalized in this country. It's wrong. We each have to reject political violence with, with all the moral clarity and conviction this nation can muster now. All right. So that strikes me as completely right. And we do face a threat from the normalization of political violence, just as uh, President Biden was saying that former President Trump was announcing on a radio show that he promises to, if he's reelected, to pardon the January 6th defendants uh, should he be reelected. He says he's financially supporting them right now. So before getting to my uh, quibble with President Biden's speech, I'd be curious to hear your reaction to the nature of the threat. Do you see it that way or do you see it or do you not? And Mona, I've spent 10 years ducking questions like this. <laughs> and despite our longtime friendship. But you're I, soon going to be an ex-president of <laughs> Purdue, very soon. Uh, well, that's true, but I'm still here. And, and, and as a uh, someone responsible for a public institution, I've resolutely stayed away from things that look or seem partisan. I have felt that it was within our responsibility to talk about higher ed issues, and we, as we just did. And I have continued to talk about the debt deficit and spending issues, because I think they are so directly threatening to the young people with whom we work here. So I don't want to say very much. I, I, I can tell you that uh, I wasn't listening to the speech last night. I was at a football game, which explains my hoarseness here. But I'll just, I'll just say that, as I think you did, that make no objection to the statements the president made. Um, I trust he was making them in a even broader than the uh, clip you played because I think there are anti-democratic tendencies across our political spectrum, or at least at both ends of it. But uh, as long as it, it was even-handed in that way, uh, these are things that need to be said. My own view is that, uh, yes, there are, there are threats on both sides of the spectrum, but, it's, um, but only one side is attempting to subvert democracy at the moment by, by not accepting the results of elections. Yeah. So um, that's the key, the key thing. Now, I do quibble a bit with the president's, the direction he took the speech after these stentorian warnings, because then he got a little bit partisan and uh, he talked about linking MAGA Republicans to policy matters that he disagrees with, like the right to choose and the right to privacy and contraception and so forth. And um, I think that was, that was a mistake. I mean, the, the, those should be kept separate. You know, we can disagree between the parties, about all of those issues in good faith. What we cannot 
have is one party that doesn't accept the outcome of elections. And that's, I think, a crucial and that and that encourages and resorts to violence. It's a crucial distinction. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you've done, and you've had the most amazing career, one of the things you've done is you've become, in addition to being a university president, um, a columnist for the Washington Post. I always enjoy your your pieces. And I particularly want to just flag, because it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but, um, uh, you know, Charlie Sykes went on vacation, so I'm hijacking his podcast, and we're going to talk about nuclear power, because you did in your um, in your piece recently, you talked about, you know, when you will a certain end, that is, you know, to fight climate change, you have to will the correct means, otherwise you're not serious, Right. Right. It seems a simple enough point. Um, but uh, I do detect and I, I gave in that column, I, I tried to suggest a couple other examples um, in which people on both sides, again, of our of our debates are very passionate, but don't take what I think is the essential step of, of any such advocacy and uh, and prescribe a constructive way to a practical way, at least to uh, make things better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the one you mentioned, trying to reach a carbon neutral or carbon free future without nuclear power, the facts are very, very plain. In the, uh, as the old line about the tourist and the Vermont farmer goes, you know, you can't get there from here. So uh, I was trying to make a slightly broader point, which you just mentioned about pragmatism and practicality. But uh, to me, that's one of the most uh, current and obvious examples. But the, the worm is turning. Credit where, uh, let's give credit where it's due. The um, Even many people who have been staunch opponents of nuclear power in the past are giving it a second look now as, as, as the technology has improved and as the uh, situation around uh, CO2 has worsened. Yes. And uh, it's it's probably the case that uh, that eventually everybody will recognize that, as you say, that we, you know, renewables are great, but you have to have a backup that's that's running twenty four seven, and uh, and you know, nuclear power is the is the obvious bridge technology to get us to where we want to go, and um, you know, it's going to be that or or you know, surrendering to Vladimir Putin, and nobody wants to do that. Um, well, some people do, but <laughs> but we don't have to get into that now. Um, so, Mitch, you are you know ending this chapter, and uh, it's a it's a tribute to you that you know at this point you know when other people might be looking at retirement, and when you announce you're stepping down as uh, as president of Purdue, instead of people saying, "Well, that was a nice career," all the stories and Politico and all these other places are, "Ooh, Mitch Daniels." He's stepping down. Maybe he'll get back involved in, in, in electoral politics. What's his next move? And uh, so uh, what is your next move? I don't have a clue, Mona. <laughs> I was going to tell anybody. It'd probably be you. But I've never mm. been a, much of a planner. And uh, I, literally, I, I don't have uh, one in mind right now. I'm, I'm not really sure. And I'll just say, as I've had to... Uh, point out to people in many stages along the line. I've never been obsessed with political office. I only ever ran for one. Uh, it was something I was became very interested in doing because I thought we had a, a state here that was not performing as it should, wasn't serving its citizens as it should, 
needed to be shaken and reformed in a lot of ways. And, and I like to think that we did a lot of that, but it wasn't, wasn't doing it as a stepping stone to anywhere. And, uh, in fact, I became very, um, intent on saying, uh, I said in, in seeking reelection, I said, this is the only, I told, I said, this is the only office I've sought, uh, ever sought or wanted to, and, uh, you know, hire us again, and we'll give you four years more of change and uh, positive change and reform. And um, as that chapter came to a close, I really was intent on, on living up to that. People understandably don't, uh, are skeptical, even cynical about things people in public office say. And uh, I wanted to leave a record that, uh, you know, here and there, there are folks you can believe. They, they'll tell you what they really mean. Now, that, none of that means I would never, after 10 years, entertain any other such notion, but I'm, I think it's unlikely, and I, don't, uh, I certainly don't have any plan to do it right now. I always liked the idea of the citizen public servant uh, who builds uh, a life outside of politics, then brings some experience uh, or skills or insights that she or he gained there uh, into public service for a time and then goes back and, in the old saying, you know, lives under the laws they helped create. Excellent. Let's just close with a quick recap about the DMV in Indiana, because, you know, one of the things that people think conservatives stand for, and for understandable reasons, many conservatives talk this way, you know, we want to drown government in the bathtub and, you know, we're, we hate government. And and your point was that there were certain things that government absolutely uh, should do and should do efficiently. So tell the story about the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> I, I enjoy doing it, and I will. I'll just say that you, you, you've correctly identified a theme that's been important to me for a long time. I, I've said so often we, we can and should have uh, vigorous debates about the, what the proper sphere of government, how big or small it should be. Some of us believe it should be very limited. Others believe it has a much bigger, should be a more expansive, more expensive, have a bigger role. Fair enough. But we should all agree on one thing. Whatever the proper sphere is, it, it ought to do well what it does. Uh, that ought to be a fundamental responsibility. And you and I have known too many people in public life who spent all their time getting there and then thinking about the next one. I didn't spend much of any time trying to make things work well where they were. That's, first of all, a dereliction. And secondly, um, what was important, uh, very important to me, was that if you could make the everyday services of government more effective, more visibly uh, helpful to people, um, you might build credibility so that when you propose the next new idea, the next change, which is always, people are always reluctant to make change, they, they might listen a little more attentively. So uh, on arriving in, in the public office, I had told folks along the line, I said, you know, if we get there, uh, we've got this, uh, at that point, bankrupt state, we've got this dysfunctional state government um, and uh, I said, we're going to fix everything we can. We're going to go after everything large and small, but we're going to start in two places, the Department of Revenue and the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Why? Because they touch almost every single citizen. I said, if we can ever make a noticeable difference there, people will um, give a listen to the next thing we say we want to do. And so um, it was a wonderful, there have been business school cases written about it. Every state I know of uh, hates its uh, license branch system. It was a laughing stock here. 
running for office, I used to say things like, uh, you know, people go to the Indiana BMV with a box lunch and a copy of War and Peace. <laughs> I hope they don't finish both of them before somebody calls their name. And um, uh, we just attacked it right away. We had to do things like close a lot of branches that weren't being used very much, but were costing money. This was hugely controversial in those communities and uh, gave a platform for local legislators to posture on. But, you know, things like that, we, we took the savings, put them into a first-rate computer system, brought in people from, as I recall, Disney to help us think through what makes a positive customer experience when somebody walks in a place like this. I'll skip over a very interesting set of changes and tell you that within about three or four years, I was able to look on my desktop every morning and see what the average time that someone spent in an Indiana BMV was. And when it got below 12 minutes, I knew we were getting somewhere. Even today, I, I don't think the standards have really slipped. If you have to go, and you usually don't have to go, you can make an appointment for the exact time you walk in. If you don't do that, a greeter will meet you and say, oh, Ms. Sharon, what's your errand? Oh, you want to see uh, you know, Mitch on line three. When you check out, you'll be given a receipt that shows what you paid if you did, but it also shows how many minutes and seconds since you met that greeter. So it's something even today uh, people remind me of. I've often said if there's a tombstone, for me it'll say he raised four wonderful daughters and fixed the BMV. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Mitch Daniels, for joining us today on the Bulwark Podcast, and uh, best of luck in whatever your next endeavor will be. Great talking to you as always, Mona. Thanks for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.